Coming up on Tech Nation, the second installment in our two-part series, Chernobyl, Then and Now. In last week's show, we heard a journalist's perspective on what exactly happened at Chernobyl Reactor Number 4 at the time of the accident and what led up to it. Today, we look at the aftermath. What was the true impact of Chernobyl on humans, on the environment, on the politics of governments with nuclear capabilities, and even on international humanitarian organizations, all of which continue to have effects today? Part two of our Chernobyl series coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes. Wheels. San Francisco is awash in wheels. It's not just cars as in Uber or Lyft or buses or even delivery trucks. It's all these other wheels. All over the city, there are bike stands with 10 to 20 bikes all lined up, ready for you to check out with your smartphone app and leave it at a bike stand elsewhere. On brilliant sunny days, these stands are empty, but mostly there are always some there for the taking they may even be full. And if you look more closely, you'll realize that some are electric, giving you a much-needed boost up these famous hills or for long distances. Helpful is that the city is spider-webbed with green bike lanes and large arrows telling riders where to go next. And there are plenty of other brand electric bikes. One company is Scoots, whose motto is Electric vehicles for everyone. The future of mobility is shared. Scoots features two types of vehicles at this point. Electric motor scooters, complete with helmet, and kick scooters, which are not unlike the scooters kids in kindergarten love. Only these are adult size. They're motorized. And wherever you find one, untended on the sidewalk, it's available through your app. Did I mention the unicycles? Not the old-fashioned kind with a seat and pedals. These are motorized, and it's just a wheel with two pedals to stand on. The pedals can be positioned in front and back of the wheel or on either side. These, however, appear to be privately owned. But when you're in your car and someone appears to be zipping fast alongside you or even past you and their legs aren't moving, they're on a unicycle. But the point is, there are wheels everywhere, and they're there for the taking. If you want to get from one place to the next, you figure out what wheels will work for you. What you don't do is look for a bus stop and figure out the route and the schedule, and if you have to transfer and then walk some more with your purchases and your laptop and whatever, hey, humans want to go from one place to another right now, the speediest and most convenient way they can. Pushing old technology because it's the right thing to do, or we've invested in the infrastructure, or how else are we going to do it? Well, that's the question of the moment. How are we going to do it?
Let's be clear. Despite the human proclivity to want to get there fast, humans can still be mischievous. That's a good word, mischievous. The scooter companies, in addition to scoot, are lime and bird and spin and skip, and I'm sure I've left someone out. But let's get back to mischievous. Having found a bunch of lime scooters on the street, some miscreants, another good word, lined up ten of them all in a row. Then they took another lime, whipped out their app, and rode it directly into the scooter scrum. They call it lime bowling. Such delights might have limited appeal when you realize your app knows it's you, and the time and the place and the technology does have a way of catching up with you. San Francisco is grappling with all manner of issues regarding all this, but the bug has caught on. Everyone wants to go everywhere whenever they want to, and they don't even need to buy a vehicle, unless, of course, you fancy a unicycle. But someone is probably working on that startup as I speak. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the second of our two-part series, Chernobyl, Then and Now. Last week, we heard from journalist Adam Higginbotham, the author of Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. He took us inside the reactor control room. He profiled the people who were on the scene or who played a role and he painted a picture of the unfortunate human, technical, and political elements which came together in exactly the wrong way just after midnight on April 26, 1986. This week, in Part 2, MIT historian Kate Brown looks at the impact on human health and the changes to the environment, both of which go far beyond Chernobyl. She traces the minimization of these effects by governments and international humanitarian organizations and the total global impact of nuclearization since its inception in the 1940s. Yes, it can be felt even today. Kate Brown is an historian and a professor of science, technology, and society at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her book is Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl Guide to the Future. Exactly. And but then I I did. I turned the page and then there's all kinds of precautions one should take. Don't eat any berries or mushrooms. Don't drink your cow's milk. Better, in fact, to get rid of your cows and keep pigs instead. Make sure you keep close tabs on your children. In fact, 
better that nobody enters the forest surrounding the village. You know, there's all these precautions that villagers had to take in these contaminated areas that meant that suddenly they're no longer just living on a collective farm in the Soviet Union, but they're living on a collective farm that has to be run like a nuclear power plant. Well, one of the directives I found really chilling, it said, remove topsoil from the garden and bury it in specially prepared graves far from the village. Right. It is chilling. Yes. Yes. Even your soil, especially your soil, is no longer good for day-to-day farming. Now, I want to get a picture of sort of the geographic reach of the radioactive fallout, um, as well as what happens. Was this a a one-and-done radioactive material fell, Mm. that's it? Or are we talking about something that that goes on? Yeah, the, unfortunately, the latter is the case. And, you know, what, the thing that you see in coverage and, and in many histories of Chernobyl and journalistic accounts is the, the zone of alienation, the, you know, the Chernobyl zone, as we know it. And that was, you know, right after, within a, 12 hours after the accident, Soviet nuclear disaster uh, managers made a 30-kilometer circle on a map and said, we're going to depopulate this area and make this off limits for human habitation for the near future. And they did that. And they deported within about two weeks, 120,000 people from that first zone of alienation. But then they also did some other interesting things. They noticed that there was the northeast, prevailing northeast winds, and there was a big storm front gathering about 36 hours after the accident. The storm front was picking up all these radioactive fallout from the burning reactor. The reactor was still burning, and it was moving this big black storm cloud towards the big Russian cities over the Belarusian border, Voronezh, Yaroslavl, and Moscow. And they thought, oh, my God, we can't have radioactive fallout land on cities like Moscow with 8 million people in them. So they sent up planes, planes filled with uh, silver oxide to seed the clouds. And they f- the planes made these circles 10 kilometers, 20, 50, 60, 100 kilometers out from the zone. And they seeded the clouds and they made it rain. And whenever they seeded the clouds, the rain came down. Uh, it was a pretty successful operation. They they headed northeast from the plant. They made it rain in Belarusian villages. They skipped over the pretty big city of Gomel, uh, 600,000 people, and then they made it rain after Gomel in the Mogilov province. Now that, you know, I mean, it's a triage operation. There are fewer people there. It's rural area, farmers, sparsely populated they chose to have radioactive fallout land there rather than on big cities, fine. It would have been, I guess, an okay decision had they told anyone in Belarus they were doing this. They didn't. They failed to tell even the leader of the Belarusian Communist Party, let alone the people on the ground dealing with the accident. So the consequences of that are huge. There are 300,000 people living in those areas. They remained in, in states of really high levels of contamination from 40 curies a square kilometer to 140 curies a square kilometer. A curie is, you know, huge. It's 37 billion disintegrations per second. That's a lot of energy. Uh, Scientists think people should live in no more than one curie a square kilometer. And here are people in 40 and 140 curies. So those people lived there, um, and it wasn't fully depopulated until 1999. So now there's a second zone of alienation, a second Chernobyl zone that really nobody knows about. 
disaster tourists don't go there. Journalists don't go take a look at it. But it's a you know empty spot for the most part, uh, 300 kilometers from the zone. And so to only look at that zone of alienation right next to the plan and only look at the plan is is and to only talk about this as a as a one off accident, I think is is sort of like a, a broom sweeping away the larger disaster that that goes on until this day. One part of this, which is confusing, is the differentials and the official estimates of death and 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 later complications. Um, the United you point out that the United Nations websites ranged from 31 to 54 deaths, but Greenpeace cites 200,000 fatalities and 93,000 fatal cancers in the future. What are your numbers? What do you use? Well, that's a great question. You know, I went in to the archives, and, and that's what historians do, and I asked at the Ministry of Health archives in Ukraine and Belarus and Russia for the records on Chernobyl. And at first the archivist said there was nothing of the kind. You know, that was a banned topic during the Soviet Union. But then I asked them, I prodded them to look, and I found whole huge document collections labeled in, in plain Ukrainian, the Chernobyl, the consequences, the medical consequences of the Chernobyl disaster. And those records are astonishing, and, and they are full of surprises. And the reason the archivist didn't know about them is because I was the first to check them out. Um, so the official tally is, is that 300 people were hospitalized after the accident. The count I get from the records that go all the way down to the county hospital records is 40,000 people were hospitalized in that first summer after the accident, 11,000 of whom were children. Um, that there were, you know, by 1986, I mean, by 1987, we start to see a real medical impact in these areas, you know, especially around the Mogilev um, province and in northern Ukraine, where, um, first of all, the, the is highly contaminated. Um, they, you know, they had all these animals. This is a sort of a dairy and pasture land out there. They had all these animals are out in the fields uh, when the accident happened. Clouds of radioactivity pass over. These animals start to get sores. They start to get sick and weak. So they made a decision to slaughter 50,000 animals, rounded up from the Chernobyl zone. They do that, They but they but they were loathed. You know, the Soviet Union was poor. They were loathed to throw the, that those carcasses away. So they did what they normally did. They sent the, the meat to the packing houses, the hides to tanneries, the, you know, the milk to dairies. And what they found was that the meat, most of the meat couldn't be eaten. And so the Soviet said, authorities said, don't throw it out, just jam it in the freezers and we'll wait until the half-life of these radioactive isotopes decay. And then from the provinces, they're saying, well, we're running out of freezers. Could you send us more? They don't get, those letters don't get answered. So finally, they just shove uh, 6,000 tons of radioactive meat into a train car in, in Belarus. And they send it away. They send it to Baku. And Baku, they, they've pull out a Geiger counter and say, oh, my God. And then they send it on to Armenia. Armenia sends it to Georgia. And this train car for four years traveled around the western half of the Soviet Union, being rejected in place after place, until finally they buried that meat as radioactive waste only in 1991, back in the zone where it came from. Five years of traveling around. Fro yeah, finally, no, you know, the, the refrigeration service, you know, stopped working and, and no electrician would work on those trains. 
And so they just buried the whole car inside the zone. I find that uh, three quarters of milk in these contaminated areas were over permissible levels. Um, by 1987, 22% of all mothers' milk was over permissible levels. And it's, that's, I think, an astounding thing to think about, a permissible level of radioactivity in mothers' milk. Um, by 1988, a quarter of the milk was still too hot to drink. And then they do things like they take samples of wild boars. They catch fi 59 wild boars. 47 of them are above permissible levels. All of the radioactive, all of the boars are radioactive, um, but some are just, you know, really radioactive. So this is the kind of exposures people were getting. And um, it started to show up in, in sort of chronic health problems, um, by 1987, half of all children in these territories had enlarged thyroids. Uh, radioactive iodine goes right to the thyroid and causes thyroid cancers, thyroid disease. Um, by 1989, 30% um, of all kids in these areas had anemia. Um, children and pregnant women were especially hard hit. Um, of 222 births in the um, one um, county of the Mogilev province, 67% of mothers had birth complications, twice as many as in 1986. Uh, heart, you know, children born with heart defects doubled, that's known as the Chernobyl heart. Perinatal deaths, those are deaths within 28 days of birth. Um, they doubled in 1987 and tripled in 1988. In fact, of 103 uh, pregnancies in that one county, 63 babies were born alive in 1987. That means almost half of the babies died. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Kate Brown, a professor of science, technology, and society at MIT. She's here today with Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl guide to the future. The kind of research that has to go on here, I was fascinated by the what you and your team did. Four years, you yourself obviously devoted to this, two research assistants, 27 archives across the USSR, the former USSR, uh, Europe and the United States. These archives, this was all before computers. Right, right. So yeah, I'm just uh, pulling out paper files. They're bound in big volumes. Uh, the way archives usually work is that they sequester documents for 20 or 30 years. So, they ha so history has to be in the past 20 or 30 years before historians get to look at the documents. So right about when I started working on this, 2014 and 15, these documents started to become declassified. And, you know, people have argued for a long time. Greenpeace says 200,000 fatalities from Chernobyl, UN agencies like the International Atomic Health, uh, I'm sorry, UN agencies like the International Atomic Energy Agency or World Health say 33 to 54 people died. I mean, between 200,000 and 33 is a big gap. Um, and, and a lot of scientists then weigh in and say, well, we'll never know how many people died from Chernobyl. Uh, though I found that we can know that you go into the archives, you you start to look at the record, and what was really clear was um, pathways of contamination, mostly through food, and these are farming areas where people eat 
food locally. They mostly eat food that they produce. The stores had very little in them. They would sell salt and kerosene. And, and otherwise, people are going to the farmer's markets or they're eating what they produce in their gardens and in their farms. So um, that's an unusual population. And they get highly contaminated from the food products that they're consuming. And it um, the, the health impact of that was profound. Um, what we find are, um, by 1988, in classified documents, researchers and doctors are writing from these contaminated areas saying, we have on our hands a public health disaster. Uh, rates of cancers double and triple. Uh, but not just, and cancers are, are in strange areas, like cancers of the lips, the mouth, the uh, digestive tract, thyroid cancers, and leukemias. Um, but people also feel strange in other ways, too. Right away, they, they report uh, having a sore throat and a kind of um, a sense of, you know, a runny nose all the time. And, and that's from, you know, the radioactive isotopes in the air as people uh, breathe in and breathe out. Their lungs act like a filter, filtering out radioactivity in the, in the atmosphere and, you know, sort of breathing in radioactivity and filtering it out and breathing out less radioactivity. So as the officials are saying, don't worry, levels of radioactivity are going down. They're going down because the organisms in the environment, which include plants and animals and humans, are using their bodies to filter radioactivity from the, from, you know, Chernobyl radioactivity from the environment. So this was all under wraps. Um, it was a banned topic until 1989 in the Soviet Union. Uh, the archives have only recently become open. And now I think we can raise our estimates and, um, and decide really Greenpeace was far more correct than, than the UN agencies. Um, the count I have is in Ukraine alone, which received only about 30% of Chernobyl radiation. The rest went to Belarus and Russia. They have on the record 35,000 people who uh, received subsidies because their spouse died from Chernobyl exposures. Now, that's 35,000 people who were old enough to get married and got married. The larger count of, that includes people who were, you know, died as children, died as babies, uh, is 150,000, and that's in Ukraine alone, the least contaminated of the three Soviet republics that were contaminated. It went far away from the actual starting site. That's uh, right. In one part of your very in-depth book, you write about science across the Iron Curtain, which is uh, familiar to people of a certain age below that. Mm -hmm. They can find out what the Iron Curtain is because they can Google as I say. Right. <laughs> and one of your chapters in this section is thyroid cancer, the canary in the medical mind. And you have mentioned that, that thyroid cancer in children. But let's go into more depth on this, because while not supported by the World Health Organization or the UN or the U.S., the findings, some findings were actually published in Nature. That's right. Yes. So what happened is that just as the Soviets were coming clean with this public health disaster, and they, by 1989, they realized they couldn't handle this disaster on their own, with, with, despite a great deal of trying. And so um, 
they started to publish maps that showed where the contamination was. People started to get really angry. This was the time when the Soviet Union was blowing up with political protests, and lots of people were out in the streets asking to know more about Chernobyl. And as they did that, um, it became clear that there were these areas like in the Mogilev province where people were living in territories that were far too radioactive to sustain human life, especially the life of farmers. So they made this plan that they needed to relocate another at least 200,000 people. And um, they asked the UN for funding to do that. They they're going to have a pledge drive that was going to raise $1 billion in today's money to relocate people and to do a long-term health study, kind of along the lines that they did uh, a big epi study that they did after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. The Americans came in and did this big study of bomb survivors. So they were going to do that. But then the Soviet Union started to fall apart. And the UN agencies came in and started to manage this situation, you know, on behalf of the Soviet government. And uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency put together a group of 200 scientists. They had scientists going in for sort of two-week junkets. They came away 18 months later and said, you know, these people might be sick from, you know, heart problems, respiratory problems, autoimmune disorders, cataracts, all these complaints that people, you know, they're going off the charts. But they're not sick from Chernobyl radiation because the doses are too low compared to what the doses were in Hiroshima. So we think that it's not from Chernobyl. And that became the sort of deciding blueprint. And that that original 1991 study was reproduced many times, most famously in 2006 for this big Chernobyl Forum document, says the same thing. But in the meantime, people were reporting all these children having thyroid cancer. And, and children and thyroid cancer is super rare. One in a million children get thyroid cancer normally. And there are these towns in Belarus where they'd have five kids with thyroid cancer all of a sudden after, you know, around about 1988, 89. Um, and uh, Ukraine, by 1989, there were 20 kids with thyroid cancer in the contaminated areas, and Belarus had 30 kids. Now what's going to happen? The, the UN has already said, you know, the International Atomic Energy Agency already said in 1986, we don't expect to see any health problems from Chernobyl, and they, they say that consistently all along. Suddenly there's these 50 kids with thyroid cancer. Uh, one of these UN consultants takes these 20 biopsies of kids from Ukraine. He brings them home to the United States, has his lab check out, is this really thyroid cancer? The biopsies check out. Then what happens is interesting. In this big report that the UN uh, consultants wrote for the International Atomic Energy Agency in 1991, they say, we saw some cases, there were some rumors of thyroid cancer among kids. Um, these proved to be just anecdotal. We looked all over. We didn't find any Chernobyl health effects. And they don't say anything, really, about these 20 cancers that they had verified. And so this, you know, became a big scandal that sort of blew up after 1992. And for about four years, scientists went back and forth. Were there cancers, thyroid cancers in the contaminated areas? Were they from Chernobyl radiation? Finally, in 1996, they said, yes, in fact, there were you know, there are many, many that now they count around 6,000 cancers for, among children from Chernobyl radiation. And they admitted they were wrong in 1996. But that was after this big pledge drive 
in which the UN had said very clearly, we found no health problems and we don't expect to find any except a handful of children's thyroid cancers in the future. So they recommended against resettling people from contaminated territories and against a study, a long-term study of Chernobyl health effects. I've been speaking with historian Kate Brown, the author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, we'll hear more about the human impacts of Chernobyl, especially on women's reproductive health and the next generation, and how the lessons of Chernobyl came into play for the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, or didn't. Stay with us. listening to the Tech Nation series, Chernobyl, Then and Now. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Kate Brown, a professor of science, technology, and society at MIT. She's here today with Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl guide to the future. In Ukraine, by 1989, there were 20 kids with thyroid cancer in the contaminated areas, and Belarus had 30 kids. Now what's going to happen? The, the UN has already said the International Atomic Energy Agency already said in 1986, we don't expect to see any health problems from Chernobyl, and they, they say that consistently all along. Suddenly there's these 50 kids with thyroid cancer. Uh, one of these UN consultants takes these 20 biopsies of kids from Ukraine. He brings them home to the United States, has his lab check out, is this really thyroid cancer? The biopsies check out. They don't say anything, really, about these 20 cancers that they had verified. And so this, you know, became a big scandal that sort of blew up after 1992. And for about um, four years, scientists went back and forth. Were there cancers, thyroid cancers in the contaminated areas? Were they from Chernobyl radiation? Finally, in 1996, they said, yes, in fact, there were you know, there are many, many that now they count around 6,000 cancers among children from Chernobyl radiation. 
So they recommended against resettling people from contaminated territories and against a study, a long-term study of Chernobyl health effects. So we don't really know. We don't have that study because it was part of a larger program to make sure there was no study. So we don't know. We don't so know. So we don't know. So it's easy to say, oh, we, don't, we, we may never know. But that was a decision that was made on the ground. And as um, you were tracking this down and trying to get information and who had what slides and who had what data, one part of the story which I liked is that you have what is generally the journalist honor. That's a conversation that you had with a particular scientist who later denied it to a New York Times fact checker. So right. you're one of us now, girl. <laughs> Feels great, doesn't it? Yeah, no, doesn't what are you it? Gonna yeah. do? And, uh, what did you just? Did you decide you were just going to publish that? This is what happened, so I'll write it down. Is that it? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you go and look at all the old documents and you look at the transcripts of meetings, you find even if somebody denies it. 30 years later, you find the record of it in the transcripts where that same person said, yeah, I bring home 20 slides and they all checked out. So I think that protects historians from charges of libel later on is that we do have the records that back up our account of things. Now, just to go one more generation, uh, female babies are born with all the eggs they will ever have. And young girls, of course, suffered from the effects of Chernobyl radiation. Do we have anything in the record or do we know anything about their babies that a next generation from the, the children who were who suffered at that time? Yeah, there's been, you know, again, there's been very few studies um, in part because of these early claims that there were no health effects. Uh, but a uh, researcher who's at the University of Alabama, Vladimir Vitalecki, who has roots in Ukraine, he's been doing a study um, since 2000 in which he, he monitors all the babies born in the Rivni province of Ukraine. That's northern Ukraine. It's actually pretty far from the Chernobyl zone. It's about two to 300 kilometers away. And he monitors these um, pregnant women and he looks at the babies, and he's found six times higher rates of birth defects, of a certain kind of birth defect called um, neurotube disorders. This is babies with spinal bifida and anencephalic babies, babies born without brains. These are both birth defects that, of course, are impossible to miss. So then he, did, he went the next step. He's like, well, I don't know what caused this you know, six times higher than the European norm spike in birth defects in this region. But he then took the next step of doing um, whole body scans of radioactivity in these women's bodies and found that they had elevated counts of radioactive cesium in their bodies. Now, radioactive cesium has a half-life of 30 years, and, and scientists had predicted right after the accident that all of this radioactive cesium would leave the local environment in about 15 years. Now, uh, scientists are recalculating and just determining that for some strange reason they don't quite understand, cesium is not leaving the environment, and they're making predictions of over 100 years that this, this radioactivity will linger there. I was fascinated by your treks uh, finding abandoned villages, because some of them were evacuated, and the fact that you kept a Geiger counter on the front seat of your rental car, I thought that was 
That was right. very modern sleuth. <laughs> but be safe. <laughs> be safe. Now, d- right. describe one of these experiences coming upon these abandoned villages, because there's not a, exactly a sign which says, look here, abandoned village. Yes, exactly. Well, there's one town I particularly wanted to find. It was the town of Veprin. It's in the Mogilev province of Belarus. And I wanted to find it because it was a pretty big rural town. It was and it was so nice that it even had a music school, and that was really rare in the Soviet Union at the time for a rural village to have a music school. And it had like about 9,000 inhabitants. So I went looking for it. I also wanted to find it because it had really high rates of radioactivity in the 1990s, about 40 to 60 curies of radioactivity of cesium-137 in the soils per square kilometer. That's really high. And um, I, you know, I was driving along and there's fewer and fewer farms. And then finally the farms just die out. And I see a sign for Veprin. And so I keep driving and, and I, I drive and I drive. It's a Veprin 10 kilometers. I go well beyond 10 kilometers and I don't see the town. So I go back and I go, for, you know, I just search and search. And finally, I see what looked like sort of a cement road or driveway leading into an you know, just a, a field that's overgrown with shrubs. And I pulled in there, and what I found was piles of rubble that had been the town of Veprin bulldozed into kind of, you know, almost like Aztecian pyramids of rubble. And as I looked around, I could see, you know, the plants shooting up from this concrete pads, you know, geraniums, pear tree, an apple tree, and I, I realized that these were, these plants were struggling to return and that they had been planted by owners who had once lovingly made their flower gardens and their fruit gardens in that town. And so that's when I discovered this second abandoned territory that dwarfs the original Chernobyl zone right around the plant in its size. And in the number of people who were evacuated from it, there was about 200,000 people living in that region of southern Mogilev province in the 1990s. And they finally all uh, were gone by about around about 2000, which was 15 years too late, unfortunately. Now, you visited factories and forests and bogs and all kinds of things, as well as abandoned uh, villages. You've just described the remnants, if you will, of human occupation. Can you see on the landscape if there's any damage, just geophysically, if you will? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to learn more. You know, I, I saw lots of conflicting accounts in the archives, and I thought, you know, archives can lie. And, you know, now that we're in this period of WikiLeaks and everything, we, you know, we you sometimes wonder, was information put in this archive for me to plant it there, for me to find later? And I figured, you know, archives can lie, but, but trees trees don't lie. So I thought I would learn more about radioecology and, and how uh, radioactive fallout affects the flora and fauna. So I found the only two biologists that I could locate who are consistently working in the zone. That's uh, Tim Mousseau from the University of South Carolina and Anders Moller from the CRN in Paris. And these two guys go with a team um, of usually grad students and, and junior uh, researchers go every year in June and in September, and they run experiments in 
in the zone, in the depopulated zone of uh, alienation. And they taught me a great deal. Um, I learned to be able to tell as I got out of the, the Jeep we drive around in, oh, we're in a contaminated area because suddenly I would hear no birds. There was no smell of decomposition because decomposition slows greatly uh, in very hot areas. So that beautiful forest smell is a, is a smell of trees and leaves, you know, falling apart, and that smell's not there. And you also notice in those areas that, especially the pine trees, they, they have mutations. And so the pine trees that are planted to grow board straight so they can become lumber for our houses are twisted. And the needles look like, uh, you know, a palsied hand at the end of the branches. And, you know, you hear, you know, you see lots of media stories about the thriving Chernobyl zone, and then there's pictures of wolves and of wild horses. I myself saw no wild animals the entire time I was in the zone. And that's strange. I, I live on Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., and I see uh, coyotes and owls and deer all the time. Uh, I didn't see any sign of that inside the zone. And um, what Mousseau and Moeller have found, not from anecdotal evidence, but from, you know, 20 years, nearly 20 years of research, is that bird populations, for instance, in the hot areas are depressed by about 66%. The number of pollinators are down by about 80%. And they tracked, you know, they said, oh, there's very few pollinators. So the trees, the fruit trees don't get pollinated. And then there's fewer fruit. With fewer, fewer fruit, the frugivores, the fruit-eating birds, have less fruit to eat to spread and plant their seeds as they go fly around and, and, and poop uh, in the forest. And so they found all of three fruit trees that had seeded after 1986 in these hot areas of the zone. And so basically they're describing a whole cascade of extinction that occurs when you look carefully at what is otherwise sort of a, you know, a pretty green park-like area. Um, if you start to notice things carefully, you see there's a great deal of damage. If you know what you're looking for. That's you, right. You are listening to the Tech Nation series, Chernobyl, Then and Now. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Kate Brown, a professor of science, technology, and society at MIT. She's here today with Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl guide to the future. Now, it's understandable that the Soviets at the time would want to cover this up. I mean, they were, no, without a doubt, we don't even have to discuss that. But I'm seeing international agencies covering this up. I'm seeing nations with nuclear capability. Why were those who were not the Soviets, why were they sort of committed to keeping this quiet? That's a great question, Maura. And I, you know, I, I puzzled over that for a long time because I see these actors who are uh, working for the U.S. Department of Energy, the the equivalents in France and, and Great Britain, working for the International Atomic Energy Agency, and even from World Health, minimizing this disaster, uh, dismissing the evidence, very clear evidence, like biopsies of children that are presented to them by Soviet uh, researchers and doctors. And why would they do that? Um, as you say, it's very clear why the Soviets would do that, but why would UN agencies and international actors do that? And then it started to dawn on me that Chernobyl, uh, you know, was called immediately called you know humanity's largest nuclear accident, um, but it's that's a little bit of a misrepresentation. 
there it is the largest perhaps accident but what we have in the nuclear legacy that's left behind by you know 60 years of furious bomb production is that places w that produce bombs and tested bombs there was a great deal more radioactive fallout that was emitted to the environment intentionally by design so let's just look at the US and the Soviet Union testing nuclear weapons um, and we'll con contrast that to the Chernobyl emissions. Chernobyl emitted 45 million curies of radioactive iodine. As I said, radioactive iodine goes to the thyroid, causes thyroid disease, thyroid problems, and on a host of other health problems. 45 million curies from Chernobyl. That's an awful lot. But the U.S. and the Soviet Union blowing up bombs into the atmosphere emitted 20 billion curies of radioactive iodine. What's the right? comparison? Thousand Twenty times. billion, a thousand times as much as Chernobyl, More. right? So what we see, you know, so Chernobyl, rather than being an accident, you can sort of see it as a as an acceleration in a timeline of radioactive emissions that started in 1945, got going really strongly in the early 1950s, and you know just rocketed, just socked the earth. You know, the French were testing in Algeria and the South Pacific. The British were testing in Australia and the South Pacific. The Americans were testing in the South Pacific and uniquely in the continental United States, in the American heartland in Nevada. The Americans were the only power to have the courage to test in their heartland nuclear weapons. And so and what you find is those bombs are blown up in Nevada. Nevada's dry. Uh, the the, the radio foul, radioactive fallout goes up in the air. The, it's taken by the trade winds going north and east, and it comes down only where it rains. So we see, for instance, after tests in 1953, uh, that Minnesota farms are the radioactive hotspot in the United States. Not not Utah farms and Nevada farms, but what is that? Fifteen hundred miles away in Minnesota. Those are the places, North Dakota, uh, where I grew up in Chicago, um, Eastman Kodak in Rochester. They had to have the Atomic Energy Commission tell them when they were testing bombs because otherwise all of their film would go bad from the radioactivity in the air in Rochester, New York. You know, this is called the smokestack effect because it used to be smokestacks all over the United States. And what mm -hmm. was found was that all the pollutants that were coming out of the top of the smokestack, they weren't falling on everything around it. They would go up into the air and they would go away. This is the same That's why you build effect. a smokestack. It's interesting that the Soviets did not know what to do in the aftermath because you write that there were over a thousand nuclear accidents in the five years leading up to Chernobyl, 104, 104 alone at Chernobyl itself. That's right. Isn't that a shocking fact? I found that in a top-secret Politburo document uh, that was a transcript of the meeting in which they were determining who was responsible for the Chernobyl accident. It occurred July 3rd, 1986. And just to get that document was quite exciting because um, there had been a parliamentarian in the 1990s, and she'd been on a special uh, parliamentary investigation committee to, to look at the crimes of Chernobyl. And she had, she you know, all these researchers in the late early 1990s had dug these papers out of the top-secret archives of the Soviet Union. Then the Soviet Union fell apart. And she realized, she said, you know, these documents are going to disappear. So she went in, got access to a rare Xerox machine, and made copies and took them home. 
And so I called her up and I said, I, you know, I'd like to, I see that you're using this document. I'd like to see the original to make sure it exists and, and to read it myself. And so we met on the street corner in Moscow and she handed me a, a, a disc and I handed her 600 euros and um, she handed me some evidence to show that this really was a, a, a file. And, and so now I have the, it says on the top, you know, no copies to be made. Now I have the third copy of this document in the world. So what this document told me is that they had known that they had had a fatal design flaw in this Chernobyl reactor, that they had had a lot of uh, excursions, nuclear excursions, accidents, incidences, and a a pretty major accident in 1975 in in Leningrad, which is St. Petersburg today. And the only problem is that they had, every time they had an accident, they, uh, they classified it as top secret and they didn't tell the people who should have known first on the first line of duty were the nuclear power plant operators. So they had no idea that the that the reactor could go as you were shutting it down. Get this, this is the design flaw. As you shut down the reactor, it had a tendency to speed up. That's like a car that you drive that when you first press on the brakes, it accelerates. Germane to this story is that while you were, I believe it was a graduate student, you went to the Ukraine uh, a year after Chernobyl, 1987. You have firsthand right. experience of what it was like in the Ukraine, what what the attitudes were, what uh, and what your attitude was as an American. Yes, yes. I was there as a student in what at the time was Leningrad in 1987, and I traveled widely through the Soviet Union, and then I remained in 88, 89, 90, and into part of 91 in the Soviet Union with a job. And so this was the first history I'd ever written where I could use my own firsthand knowledge to describe what it looked like and smelled like and felt like, and also the attitudes of people like myself coming from the West who had, frankly, a dismissive understanding of all things Soviet, whether it was Soviet economics, politics, science, and technology. And if it was Soviet, it had to be bad. And I and I understand that attitude so well, in part because I lived it and I experienced those that quite false understanding myself at the time. Now let's go forward to Fukushima. And in 2011, three reactors melted did they learn anything from Chernobyl, or was it a totally separate, brand-new do-over? Yeah, that's the problem with... Um, I think that's been the problem with stories about Chernobyl and reporting about Chernobyl. Lots of descriptions of the masculine heroics of the accident itself. You know, the clock is ticking, the firemen run in, the plant operators run in. Then lots of dramatic stories about those same, you know big heroes wasting away in hospitals and dying. And then there's the narrative of, well, it was, you know, the worst nuclear reactor in human history, but only 33 people died. Um, Everything, you know, a few kids got thyroid cancer and everything's fine. And so we can have more nuclear accidents and it's no problem. And I think because of that narrative and because of that attitude, when Fukushima happened, what we find is the Japanese are making the exact same mistakes as the Soviets did, as if society writ large did not learn from that Chernobyl accident. So what did they do or what didn't they do? Um, they they did not um, 
distribute prophylactic iodine that that people's iodine people take iodine pills their thyroids get satiated with iodine and then they don't pick up radioactive iodine that's really great in an emergency for people's health but they didn't want people to panic so they didn't issue radioactive uh, prophylactic iodine the other thing that they didn't do is they you know they sent people in um, uh, working class people in kind of jumpers people sort of the lowest ranks of society to face the rays of radioactivity. They, um, like the Soviets, denied that they even had an accident for a long time. Finally, the American Nuclear um, Regulatory Commission had to come over and say, you know, are you guys going to keep lying to the public much longer? Um, same mistake, mistake after mistake um, has been made. A as there's been thyroid cancers among children that have popped up in the Fukushima area, Scientists are rushing to dismiss them and say they have nothing to do with Fukushima radiation. So I, I, I'm afraid that if, until we study the lessons of the past, until we look, take a wide open look at what nuclear accidents really look like on the ground, not just in the moments of the accident, but you know, for in the months and years that follow, I fear if we don't take a good look at that, we're going to repeat those mistakes again. Well, Kate, thank you so much. I hope you come back. See us again. Thanks very much for having me on the air. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with MIT professor Kate Brown, the author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. While this series contains just two interviews, the authors in their books represent a clear picture of why it is so difficult to fully comprehend the impact of a technology at the time of failure and into the future. First of all, there's the human element. For a myriad of reasons, political, financial, ego, and even just personal convenience, we want technologies to work, and we want technologies to work without negative impact. This time of discovery about the Chernobyl incident invites us to learn new lessons in our world, which has more and more technology every day. While every technology is by no means the equivalent of an ill-designed nuclear power system, many aspects of how this technology failed rings true for all of the many technologies in our lives today. Certainly part of building technology is attempting to consider all aspects of its impact, should it fail. Or perhaps we should say, when it fails. You see, all technology fails. It's a matter of time and circumstance. And when your toaster fails, that's one thing. When a nuclear power plant fails, that's quite another. And this is what we come to see in great detail in this series, Chernobyl, Then and Now. Newly released documents, unprecedented interviews, and undeterred investigation kept both authors on the trail to find truth. We not only understand more about the incident itself and how it came into being, we can comprehend a much larger picture on its long-time impact and its continued impact in the future. There have been some real efforts in the area of building technologies that are sustainable, able to return to essential elements and re-enter the environment or even the supply stream to be used in other technologies. But how do you recycle a nuclear power plant? And what do you do about the vast array of technologies that its electricity supported? The businesses, the homes, the governments, the hospitals, the schools, and more. As we used to say, you can't just pull the plug. 
Even so, while this conversation is familiar, seldom do we learn the effects of any technology for very long, or even to its full extent. We learn in part two of this series the widespread and deep effects of a technology whose effect on the planet can only be seen in symptoms here and there, in buried information, in land which has been stripped of life. Worse, we see it in adults who were children at the time, and we see it in their offspring. This is a new way to look at the technology we create. Remembering that technology doesn't care about the boundaries of nations, and neither does nature. In so many ways, the Internet is like the wind. It crosses national boundaries at will. I suggest we make a top 10 list. These would be technologies that we commit to trace throughout their active lives. Once invented and in widespread use, we track it. I can think of one technology that's come to prominence in the last 10 years, the smartphone. 15 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist, but now roughly two and a half billion people have smartphones, one third of the world's population, and that number continues to rise. Many, like myself, are on our third or fourth or even fifth one. And what is the impact on the earth? Where do your recycled phones go? Your bottom drawer? Or to places on the planet willing to take them and break them down and perhaps make some profit somewhere. But they certainly can't be reduced to elements which can easily be used again. This is my candidate for a top 10 track list. What technologies would you put on your list? We also say on TechNation, technology is the silent partner of history. But when I listen to what is being said in these interviews and read in the books themselves that document the situation in even more detail, there's no doubt in my mind that technology is also the silent partner of our future. Many thanks to the authors, journalist Adam Higginbotham with Midnight in Chernobyl, and MIT historian Kate Brown with Manual for Survival. Further thanks for the full cooperation of the publishers, Simon & Schuster and W.W. W. Norton, as well as our production crews in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. For Tech Nation and for the series Chernobyl Then and Now, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.